0: Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of indigenous California. This bonus episode is a recording of the opening comments from a conference held at the Santa Cruz Mission State Historic Park on August 27th, 2021. The event was held the day prior to the El Camino Bell removal in Santa Cruz and was called Telling and Teaching the Truth of the California Missions, and was co-sponsored by the Amamudsen Tribal Band, the Ohlone-Kostoloan Esalen Nation, the UC Santa Cruz American Indian Resource Center, and the University of California Critical Mission Studies Program. This is the first half of a panel entitled Telling the Truth of the California Missions. The panel was moderated by Mary Lopez Kiefer, senior advisor to the Tribal Council of the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians and included a talk by Dr. Lee Panich titled Centering Ohlone Presence at Mission Santa Clara and Santa Clara University. Dr. Panich is the author of After Saint Sarah Unearthing Indigenous Histories at the California Missions. This talk is followed by Alexi Sigona, Amamudsen, and Annie Taylor of the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management at UC Berkeley. Giving a talk entitled Revitalizing Reciprocal Relations with Land Amamuts and Pathways to Reconnection.
1: So, thank you again. Uh, My name is Mary Lopez Kiefer. I'm a tribal member of the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians. Uh, The San Luis Rey Mission is located in Oceanside, California, in San Diego County. And uh, my ancestors um, come from that mission. Um, I'm also a senior advisor to the San Luis Rey Band of Mission Indians Tribal Council, uh, and a member of the California Native American Heritage Commission, and a member of the University of California's Office of the President's Native American Advisory Council and it's my honor to be the co-chair of the uh, University of California's Critical Mission Studies Project. Um, We'll next hear from Dr. Lee Panich in his discussion of Centering Ohlone Presence at Mission Santa Clara and Santa Clara University.
2: Thank you everybody for coming. I want to start by acknowledging that we are gathered on this beautiful afternoon on the unceded lands of the Wifi tribe of the Waswas Nation that is stewarded and cared for today by the Amamudsen tribal band. Um, I also want to thank the organizers for putting on this event. It's really great, um, as we are chatting up here, this is the first in-person uh, kind of conference I've been to in a long time, so I really am appreciative of everybody being here in person and tuning in online. Um, I also want to acknowledge that uh, my co-author, Gloria Gomez, who's a former uh, um, tribal council member of the Muwekma Ohlone tribe of the San Francisco Bay Area, couldn't be here today, um, but uh, she sends her regards, and I also consulted for this uh, talk with uh, Monica Ariano, who's the vice chairwoman of the Malekma Ohlone tribe. And I'll be talking about work that also includes Andrew Galvin and other members of the Ohlone Indian tribe that we've been doing um, at Santa Clara University. And I'm really pleased um, that through the hard work of tribal elders and other tribal citizens that um, we're at a place where we can come together and talk about how to tell the truth of the California missions and how to teach that truth to the next generation. Um, so, just a quick background on Santa Clara University and Mission Santa Clara. So, I'm a professor of anthropology at Santa Clara University, and as if you've ever been to our campus, you'll know that it is on the site of Mission Santa Clara, and it's the only institution or institute of higher education to be located at a um, California mission site. And that is kind of a, a heavy thing. Um, the, the campus today includes The sites of three different mission churches, Um, like many other California missions, Santa Clara, they had to move the actual complex around due to floods and earthquakes and that kind of thing. Um, There's two main cemeteries associated with those sites. Um, There's also the native rancheria, the native neighborhood, um, that while the mission kind of moved, I guess in a clockwise fashion, the rancheria stayed in the center um, and there Uh, Over the years from 1777 when it was founded until the 1840s uh, when it was eventually abandoned, there were more than 11,000 people baptized um, at Mission Santa Clara. And these were people of uh, local Ohlone descent and then later on after 1810, primarily from the Central Valley, um, people speaking Yokuts and uh, Plains Miwok languages. In addition to that, we also have on our campus a pre-contact site uh, known as Ann. And as other speakers have um, pointed out, you know, native people have been here in California since time immemorial. We know through um, archaeology that this particular settlement was occupied as as early as 2,500 years ago. So there's a very um, deep presence on our campus. Yet the university hasn't always um, been very good about telling the truth of that presence to be honest. Um, The college was founded in 1851. It was transferred from the uh, Franciscans to the Jesuits to found uh, Santa Clara College as it was then known, today Santa Clara University. And almost immediately, the Jesuits started dismantling the mission. Of course, as other speakers have noted, most of the land, most of the resources were already essentially stolen uh, by colonial elites and then eventually by um, US squatters. Uh, So it was really only the mission in the the immediate complex. Um, But the Jesuits, within a decade or so, had started building over the Adobe um, uh, buildings and turned it into uh, kind of a gothic, cathedral-looking um, church. And so, in that sense, Santa Clara resisted a little bit of that um, kind of romantic turn that scholars like uh, Elizabeth Crider reed have talked about in terms of how the, the missions that were essentially um, forgotten by early white settlers, uh, primarily Protestant coming from the East Coast, eventually became kind of the center of, of tourism and of this kind of California image uh, primarily to serve as a European anchor to lure um, other Anglo-Americans from the East Coast to come out to California. It was kind of a real estate scam in some ways. Um, and so Santa Clara, that was a little bit, came a little late to our campus. It wasn't until 1907 um, that some of this, uh, the romanticizing of the mission really got going. And that occurred when PG&E uh, quote unquote discovered the cemetery associated with the third mission complex. I won't get into the weeds on all the locations and stuff, um, but this is a site that had been marked on maps going back to the 1850s, so the discovery is in scare quotes. Um, but of course, this was uh, something of a, a major, uh, you know, momentous find, so to speak, in the local press. There were multiple newspaper articles all around the Bay Area, as far away as Fresno and other places, commenting on this discovery of the of the mission site, and um, and this is really, I think, the where some of the untruths begin. Because as um, others have talked about and as scholars like Gene O'Brien have talked about for the East Coast, uh, settlers have used different ways to kind of put Native people in the past and to anchor European presence. So, in her words, firsting and lasting. So at Santa Clara, we see this starting around 1907. The, the cemetery and the church complex were rediscovered. Um, in October and by November there was a huge celebration at the campus and in the words of the the people putting it on the town of Santa Clara and the the college in those days, it was to celebrate the advent of civilization on the sunset shore. And Native people were totally written out of it. In fact, the the remains of people from the cemetery were farmed out to different universities and whatnot. Total desecration of the um, cemetery at the same time that the local people We're using the mission as a way to kind of anchor European presence in the area. Um, And this was actually culminated, uh, speaking of bells, in 1929, the mission, the 5th mission church burned down in 1926, they built a new mission church, King Alfonso of Spain commissioned a new mission bell, and that was dedicated on Columbus Day in 1929, so it's all tying into this, you know, kind of European origins of California. Um, And then this was echoed many decades later in the 1990s with the 500 year anniversary of Columbus's first voyage to the Americas. And this actually also coincided, I'm an archeologist so I have a little bit of an archeological bent on this, but it also coincided with more archeological work at that same third mission site um, associated with the rerouting of the Camino Real, actually, um, in Santa Clara. And um, when the archeological work was done, the highway was rerouted, the city, in the university built an archeological park that commemorates the actual mission complex in that you can go there today on our campus, it's marked out in pavers, it has six feet of fill on top of it to protect it, but yet the native cemetery, the rancheria, where native people lived at the mission is totally unmarked today. So you can see how these you know, kind of erasures build on each other. And in fact, the only plaque that mentions, that could have you know, potentially mentioned native people at the uh, archeological park, simply refers to the many dwellers who lived around the mission. So just total erasure. Now, um, the, of course, Ohlone people have not just sat back and let this happen. You know, The Muwekma Ohlone tribe has been involved in stuff on our campus going back to the 1980s. I was talking to uh, Chairwoman uh, Charlene Nujma, who remembers as, as a young uh, woman participating in the construction of a Thule house on our campus. So they've um, been present. They actually, um, through their consulting services, have helped mitigate uh, some of the impacts to different archaeological, um, well, you know, ancestral sites on our campus. And so have you know, Pride and other groups, Andy Galvin, the Ohlone Indian Tribe, other Ohlone groups around the Bay Area have served as MLDs. Um, you know, uh, Chairman Lopez and, and Martin were talking about some of the kind of um, shameful treatment of ancestral remains earlier in the program. And but yet, Ohlone people have inserted themselves where they can, where there is room in the laws to be there to make sure that things are handled in the correct way. As limited as that is, I'll, you know, I want to acknowledge that. Um, and so you know, Ohlone people have inserted themselves into these issues on campus, but there hasn't been until very recently any kind of unified approach and no coordination about how we can best um, kind of center Ohlone presence and experience at our campus and at Mission Santa Clara in particular. So um, there's a couple of different things going on right now that I just wanna talk about that involve, again, um, folks from the Muwekma Ohlone tribe and the Ohlone Indian tribe. And um, so uh, we'll kind of talk about some of that work that we're doing together. The first thing is kind of a top-down uh, well, a, a, a working group, which is kind of like the most bland thing that you can imagine from an institutional perspective, but uh, one of, uh, several years, well, three years ago, I guess, our outgoing president at that time, uh, Father Michael Eng, commissioned an Ohlone, or commissioned uh, an Ohlone history working group, and so Charlene Nijma, chairwoman of the Muekma Ohlone tribe, and Andy Galvin, president of the Ohlone Indian tribe, were on this working group. I was on it, and as were other stakeholders from campus. And so basically this work kind of continued into the pandemic, which stretched it out um, longer than we would have liked. But we, the charge was to take a look at the way that mission history and Ohlone history and heritage are commemorated on our campus. And so we took a very comprehensive look um, down to the types of paintings that are ha- hanging in different uh, campus buildings. Um, and so the uh, report came out last summer. It's online if you want to uh, take a look at it. Um, But we did recommend some immediate uh, actions. One actually doesn't have to do with the mission period per se, but it turns out that there was a plaque commemorating Peter Burnett in the mission church. And if you don't know, Peter Burnett was the first American governor of California, and he advocated for a war of extermination, his words, against native people. And it turns out he was also on the founding board of trustees of uh, Santa Clara College, now Santa Clara University. His son was one of the first graduates. And um, his uh, grandkids were on the faculty, so really interesting connections that we were all learning about between kind of one of the architects of the genocide against Native people and our university. So that was item number one, get rid of the plaque, so that's done. Um, And that was something that Andy Galvin in particular had been advocating for for years. Um, The second immediate action was to remove the Junipero Serra statue from campus. That was one of the um, William H. Hannon Foundation statues that you see at many uh, Catholic schools and mission sites throughout California, placed in the 1990s. Um, So that was removed. Um, there's some community conversation that's going to happen about what to happen next with the B attack um, <laughs> uh, with the Hunifera Serra statue. Um, the Muma uh, uh, well yeah sorry Muwakma chairwoman Charlene Nijma has um, stated that you know she would like to see it uh, contextualized in the museum to talk mm-hmm. about what You know, talk about Sarah as a figure, what he stood for at the mission period, and how he has been mythologized over the years. So to use it as a way to kind of peel back a little bit of that um, romanticization, a little bit of that mythology. And then there's also future work that, um, you know, will take place. One of the things kind of interesting, listening to um, Martin's talk earlier, one of the things the working group recommended was getting at these individual histories, right? You know, histories of resistance, histories of perseverance of native people at the mission. How can we um, kind of, uh, you know, bring that story to life. So that's one of the things we'll be addressing as we move forward. And then just lastly on that front, it's just also to acknowledge that it's not just about the past, but one of the other recommendations, just checking on my time, was to um, set up scholarships for Ohlone students and and Native Californian students in the future. So that's something we're working on. Um, Now the other side of the coin is kind of bottom-up work. And so, um, you know, the university working group, this kind of thing, takes a lot of time. We have to find money and that sort of thing. But there's a lot we can do uh, working with the local Ohlone community whose ancestors you know, came through Mission Santa Clara, survived Mission Santa Clara. There's a lot we can do in the interim. And so one of the things um, that this is, you know, the goal of this is to report on a um, community-initiated partnership grant that we received from the University of California Critical Mission Studies Program. And uh, Amy Luke, who's here, and uh, Matt Crute of Arizona State University were also on this grant. And again, we worked with the Moekma Ohlone tribe and the Ohlone Indian tribe. And the idea was to kind of be more nimble, to put some um, plans into action in the short term uh, while these other things are happening. And so working with the community partners, the overarching theme has been, we are here still. So how do we put that kind of Ohlone presence back into the campus? Um, and the way we w- wanted to do this, again, was to have, that, have uh, You know, Ohlone people whose ancestors survived the mission tell the story in their own words. And so initially we wanted to do uh, video interviews and recordings, but of course COVID um, kind of threw a wrench in that. So we've done some other things. We did a virtual walking tour um, through Google Google Earth, which is pretty cool. Um, You can find it online. It's on the Community Heritage Lab website at um, scu.edu. And there we weren't able to incorporate video, but we're able to incorporate text from different uh, community partners talking about how they viewed the mission. We have stops. You know, we kind of consulted on where we should stop. On the walking tour, it goes through the physical um, part of the campus and talks about uh, historic people like Yoskalo, who was um, rebelled against Mission Santa Clara in the 1830s. So, getting that um, kind of uh, those individual stories of Native freedom fighters and that kind of thing, and giving kind of contemporary Ohlone perspectives on that history. Um, the other thing we're doing is we are now this fall starting to kind of put together a website that's going to look at um, kind of be a resource hub for people at Santa Clara or outside about local um, kind of Ohlone history and the, history, the native history of Mission Santa Clara. So again, we're working with those groups to kind of put together a website that will have resources that the community thinks, um, you know, or, or feels best represents their uh, voices on this matter. And so not to have kind of outside experts dictating what is going to be taught about the mission, but instead to have them kind of forefront their experience. And then, lastly, um, kind of even further down the line, where we had a grant that uh, Amy put together um, from the National Endowment of the Humanities to put together kind of a more robust virtual reality or augmented reality experience um, that again would kind of center those um, Ohlone community voices and experiences. That would really, the intent is to tie um, the past to the present under that theme, We Are Here Still. And then, lastly, I just want to wrap up with, um, again, I'm sorry that uh, the, my co-authors from the Muekma Ohlone tribe couldn't be here um, for them to kind of talk to you about this in their own words. But I just want to kind of end with a quote from Charlene Nijma, who again is the uh, chairwoman of the Muekma Ohlone tribe. And it's a quote that, you know, we we're talking about, you know, how do, how do they as a tribe, how does she as an individual, as a tribal leader, see the importance of the mission, period or not? And she, this is what she said. It's a story, I think, that needs to be told for what it is, the truth. So, thank you. Um,
1: thank you, Dr. Penich. Our last panelist is Alexi Sagona from the Amamutsun Band and Annie Taylor um, from UC Berkeley. And they're going to be speaking to revitalizing reciprocal relations with land uh, the Amamutsun's pathways to reconnection.
3: Thank you so much. And uh, it's an honor to be here uh, amongst these distinguished scholars and elders and other folks here. Mishmin Truhis, Kanraka, Alexi. My name is Alexi Sagona, and I'm a member of the Amamutsun Tribal Band and uh, PhD student in environmental science, policy, and management in the Division of Society and Environment at UC Berkeley. <laughs>
4: hi everyone i'm annie taylor i'm also in the department of environmental science policy and management at uc berkeley with alexi Um, and i'm going to kick it off today to talk to you a little bit about the background of how we got to be working together on this project so luckily alexi and i met actually just before we began our graduate studies at berkeley and we decided to launch an interdisciplinary project this is very ambitious where Alexi could lead the the social science piece, the ethnographic piece, and I could lead the geospatial and ecological pieces. And we thought, you know, together, we can do some really awesome work with the Amamutsun Tribal Band and the Amamutsun Land Trust. Um, And so for me, as a a white and non-native researcher, I just have to say what a privilege it is for me to work with the Amamutsun Tribal Band. Um, It really is uh, an amazing experience and the trust that, that is instilled in us, um, we do not take for granted. Um, and just the work that the tribe is doing, it's wonderful to get to contribute to all of those projects. So um, we are collaborating with the tribe generally on our PhD research, but today we'll be talking about a project that was funded through the Critical Mission Studies grant program and we're very grateful. Um, so in that project, um, we're really, we set out to study the social and ecological legacies of the mission system. Um, through relationships between Amamutsen people and their homelands. So as we've heard today, all these wonderful speakers, the issues of indigenous erasure and dispossession are complex and cannot be separated from issues of ecological and environmental degradation. And so we set out to study the, these ecological and cultural issues together. So um, today we'll be talking about some of the work that was funded, including interviews with Amamudsen tribal members. So I'll talk through some of the interview work Alexi will take us through some of our main findings, and then we'll each talk through the threads of research that have emerged from those wonderful conversations. Uh, So over the past year, we conducted 12 interviews with Amamutsun tribal members, most of which were on Zoom, as you might have predicted. Um, And these conversations allowed us really to begin, especially me, to begin building relationships with Amamutsun people and to hear those perspectives in some depth. Um, and all of our research methods and questions have been directly changed and informed and transformed by the ideas and the questions and the stories of those people, those interview participants. Um, and although that, that allowed us to start our research in a way we knew would be useful and relevant to a part of the Amamutsen community, we know that that iteration and development and co-development is not over. And so that'll be an ongoing process. Uh, but we'll talk about what we've been able to start so far. Um, I'm just to make sure I didn't miss anything else. I think I'm ready to hand it over to you to talk about what we found.
3: Yes, thank you, Annie. And you know, I think this kind of falls in line with what Dr. Martin Rizzo Martinez was talking about with centering the voices of Indigenous peoples, right? So, using interviews as a method to center these voices is really powerful. And I'm actually really excited to share, you know, a little bit of what we found uh, within these interviews. And so. You know, these are just with a few select community members. Uh, and so we identified community members with experience with land-based cultural practices, such as gathering or tending, uh, because our you know, project is centered on the contemporary period and human land relationships. Uh, and so these were semi-structured interviews Uh, and they centered around topics participants had the most experience with. Uh, You know, we had dance captains, we had basket makers, we had food producers, right? And so we were able to really just uh, ask them, you know, uh, what they're most passionate about and it really has helped guide our research as, you know, junior scholars as well as, uh, you know, kind of defined uh, three different themes uh, that we're going to share with you that have emerged within these interviews so our first theme identified was that participants chose to center contemporary tribal resilience and thinking about the well-being of the future generations uh, when asked about the instance of Spanish colonization and its effects. Uh, For example, you know, one participant discussed how dwelling on the mission history was haunting and depressing and how they try to stay focused on moving forward to honor their ancestors and bring the culture back and passing this down to future generations. And another participant discussed how they did not want to give light to the things the Spanish did to their ancestors in our interview, and how they focused on tribal resilience and still being here today, as Dr. Rodriguez mentioned. Uh, We found this theme of focusing on the present and future resilience in line with indigenous scholar Eve Tuck's call for moving away from a damage-centered research framework. Uh, Instead, we have centered resistance to ongoing legacies of colonialism and tribal perspectives of creating change that's more aligned with Eve Tuck's support for centering desire instead of damage while conducting research with indigenous communities. And our second theme uh, that we found within these interviews uh, was around the legacies of colonialism, which began with the mission period, of course, here in California, and the effects on access to land and the important kinship relations with non-human life. And so, as many of you all know, uh, indigenous folks see non-human uh, life as kin, as relatives, right? Not as things that you can own, for example. Uh, so one participant understood colonization as taking away opportunities to connect to land to fulfill cultural responsibilities, and this caused intergenerational trauma in the community today. And another community member understood introduced species as being like a disease similar to the diseases introduced in colonialism that decimated native populations. Excuse me. And to practice certain uh, components of culture, tribe members rely on accessing land, uh, which can pose a problem since the Amamutsun community does not own any land. Uh, you know, Dr. Rodriguez mentioned, you know, a tree without roots, you know, how can you be landless and still have, you know, be there and hold on to your culture? And one participant described conducting stewardship on Amamutsun ancestral land uh, that was held by private landowners as being difficult because some of these landowners were the, the same families uh, of who stole the land from the tribe, and it was kind of disheartening because this participant talked about how they cannot personally afford to live on their own homelands. Uh, so you know relationships can be a great way forward, but you, you know kind of knowing that uh, their ancestors you know are part of that problem, as Chairman Lopez was talking about that responsibility, uh, can sometimes be difficult for community members today to be on these lands. Uh, and on a related note of accessing lands owned by others, uh, another participant discussed how an access agreement with a local landholding agency uh, required having to ask permission every time they wanted access. And they mentioned how their ancestors did not have to ask for permission and they should not have to either. So, you know, these participants understood the decimation of the ecosystem as well as land dispossession as both being barriers to engage in these important relationships between the tribe and land. And I want to note uh, sociologist Kari Norgaard, who describes the uh, ecological degradation of landscapes as being a part of settler colonialism, Uh, and their work is up in Northern California. And the final third theme that I wanted to talk about was that ownership, while problematic, would support restoring these relationships to land. Uh, you know, our, this final theme kind of aligns with our commitment to center desire based research and explores the benefits of, you know, owning property and it's kind of something that, you know, we found a lot of participants really interested in, in exploring and chatting about in our interviews. Uh, so one participant, you know, just uh, shared a story of gathering acorns on a public preserve while a park do- docent tour was occurring. Uh, they overheard the docent describing Native American practices as being in the past while they were simultaneously out there gathering traditional foods. Uh, the participant understood this mentality of there being no more natives left as actually stemming from the tribe not having a place to come together uh, and educate the public, and you know understood that as being an uh, impetus for owning land being important for the community. Uh, Another participant explained how basketry plants need to be regularly tended for many years to be usable and how access limitations make the process incredibly difficult. Uh, they understood having land as being important to carry on the traditional basketry. And you know, for, for some of these access agreements that the Amamutsun community have, uh, they're on five-year basis. And so you know, after five years, maybe these basketry materials uh, might not be able to be gathered. And so there's kind of that insecurity. And you know, it takes many, many hours to make baskets. Uh, so I've been told. Uh, And finally, one participant discussed how land ownership does not align with Amamutsun cultural values, uh, as like many indigenous values of owning land, uh, but it would still be helpful for the community and there could be opportunities to be more relational with land instead of enforcing the concept of ownership uh, over other human kin. Sort of like a, you know, kind of let's engage in this system and change it at the same time uh, because of the difficulties of not owning land you know, is so tremendous for indigenous communities whose culture relies on land and these, you know, land-based culture. So as Amamutsun Tribal Band continues to grow their stewardship programs and partner with other land-holding agencies, the question of whether ownership is necessary to fulfill community needs or if access held by, you know, uh, or access to land, sorry, held by partners is suitable, uh, is of great significance. Whether or not you know, these priorities should be about ownership or about you know, really uh, getting great access agreements is, is I think uh, important to, to think about. And so to summarize these main three themes, uh, we found that you know, first, community members advocate for centering their contemporary experiences and the well-being of future generations rather than discussing the traumatic experiences occurring during mission times. Uh, it's not a, sort of this desire-based research. Uh, that we're called to do. Uh, second, that introduced species and land dispossession both play a role in continuing to separate tribe members from their lands and culture that depends on native landscapes. And Annie is going to be able to, you know, share a little bit more about the ecological side of this. Uh, and finally, uh, while land ownership may not align with cultural values, it would push back against the idea that native people are of the past and allow for the community to come together and support important important cultural practices depending on regular access and stewardship such as gathering basketry materials. Um, and so next I want to turn to a, a case study of Amamutsun land dispossession and a future threat of our research. Uh, you know, so as Annie and I noted, we kind of use these interviews to uh, ground our research and we have a couple things that we want to share like uh, of how we've been able to you know, go off of what these community members have said. Uh, for future uh, publications and research. Uh, And so here I want to talk about one clear example of the impacts on uh, human land relations can be observed through historical land dispossession of the Amamutsun. And to better understand this land dispossession, which started in the mission period, uh, we have conducted research into one mission-era rancho that continues to be a site of contention for the tribe, and that is known as Yurostock. So today the tribe is leading the Protect Eurostock campaign to protect uh, this sacred site from a proposed sand and gravel mine. Uh, This was also uh, a mission-era rancho that was uh, uh, owned and ran by Mission San Juan Batista, just a few miles away from here, inland. Uh, We believe that the historical and ongoing property disputes and issues of Amamutsun access to this Eurostock area highlight the different forms of severing tribal relationships to land during the three waves of colonization. And so, uh, you know, we've conducted this archival research to better understand how the Spanish, Mexican, and early American era land claims of uh, Rancho Eurostock have kind of shaped this landscape. You know, starting in 1803, there were, you know, these issues between settlers of, you know, who owns this land, and it's always been seen as a sacred site for the community. And the community has had to kind of, you know, uh, find ways to resist, you know, these uh, commodi- commodification of this land in this era, area, uh, and so as part of our project, we've collaborated with the Amamutsun Land Trust, and this past July we held a community event at an adjacent parcel uh, of, uh, held by the Land Trust of Santa Cruz County, uh, right next to Eurostock Rancho. So this was the first large community gathering occurring in the Eurostock area, uh, and. And we're able to utilize our research, this archival research for educational materials for community members on that day. And this uh, event was part of our commitment as researchers to support the interests of tribe members in accessing and connecting with land uh, and with Amamutsun homelands. Uh, so we wanted to bring that up. You know, it was a really wonderful day, and it wasn't just our archival research at all. It was the elders and the, the community members who were able to talk about stewardship and you know, the history of that land that really made that day special, and we were just so grateful to be able to be a part of it. Uh, and so next, I wanna uh, pass it on to Annie, who's gonna share another uh, uh, component of our research.
4: Thank you. Yeah, so as Alexi has just really eloquently mentioned, this socio-ecological lens is is critical to our study of the mission period because of the devastating impacts on people and land um, and how those are so deeply connected. And in particular, I was so excited, Chairman Lopez mentioned this earlier, California's coastal grasslands are among the most biodiverse and also the most endangered ecosystems in the world. Um, This is primarily due to development, also agriculture, Uh, introduction of invasive species and fire suppression, that disconnection from indigenous stewardship here. And those are all things that are directly linked to the mission period. So there's this need then for healing both from cultural oppression and also ecological degradation and disconnection. And this was reflected by many interview participants in that second theme that Alexi mentioned of kinship with non-human life. Um, So I first read about reciprocal restoration in the work of Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer who, uh, I'll use her words, she stresses that the restoration of native ecosystems cannot be separated from the restoration of native cultures. And this idea of restoring culture and ecosystems is a central goal of the tribe. So much of our research now is focused on this reciprocal restoration. Uh, studying the relationships between moots and stewardship practices, these cultural resources on the landscape, as well as climatic changes such as drought and wildfire. And all of this is in service of guiding future stewardship and healing with this land. I want to just pause here to note that a lot of my work involves GIS or mapping, and I use those words interchangeably. Um, and I do believe these tools are useful, but I we have to acknowledge they've been used globally for the seizure and occupation of indigenous lands. These are tools with colonial and military origins. And so it's important, you know, for me as a non-native researcher trained in GIS to be accountable to that history and accountable also to the Amamutsen community in finding new and just ways to apply those tools. Um, so in addition to our ecological questions, as those emerge from the participants, our research is also becoming an exploration of what it means to build novel spatial representation of amamuts landscapes and stories and relationship. Um, And I'm I'm actually fairly hopeful that we can do this together because maps are an essentially relational thing. They, at their essence, um, try to describe how things are related spatially to each other. So I'm excited to see how we can grow this tool in a number of different ways uh, with the tribe. I mentioned maps because our interviews illustrated how maps and other spatial tools could be useful in promoting tribal members' access to cultural resources on the land. So whether that be food, and medicine plants, or basketry plants, as Alexi has mentioned, or plants used for ceremony, um, there, there's this ability to use maps to find those places. So I got you know very excited, and we be- began to pull together these. Um, data sets of different cultural resources and plants, and some of these data sets, the Native Stewardship Core of the tribal band had uh, collected themselves. And so I was getting all excited building these maps of cultural resources. And it was just around this time that we um, spoke with someone in an interview, and they spoke about the importance of hunting, hunting and gathering in a good way. Um, and that you know, the gratitude and humility of their approach was so essential to those activities. And I was just struck, you know, stewardship and gathering is not just knowing when and where to go to find something. Um, it's not just a map. It's all of it's all of the cultural relational values of the Amamutsan people um, that that just maybe can't be shown or or housed in sort of a more Western framework map or database. Um, and so that helped me realize how critical it is in this partnership with the tribe that the tribe owns and has exclusive access to those data and those maps involving cultural resources because Amamutsan people and culture are what give those maps life and meaning. Um, Indigenous philosopher Kyle White, Alexi actually gave me this this idea. He speaks about traditional ecological knowledge being situated and embodied, meaning it cannot be taken out of its cultural context. And so that's something that is grounding us moving forward. Um, I'm just gonna check if I'm missing anything. So yeah, so initially what this work looks like is that um, we're beginning to map and model both the abundance and the seasonality of food and medicine plants in this area, in the broader stewardship area of the Amamutsin tribal band. Um, and we, we've got lots of other mapping projects going on and all of this is also helping us explore what novel spatial representations look like. What is an Amamutsin spatial knowledge system? And exploring that with um, with broader parts of the community. So I also want to say that a key piece of this work that we're excited to do is to translate these spatial knowledge systems and relationships for land-owning agencies. So to speak to that third theme that emerged from our interviews, that having a place to go, having roots, um, and at the very least access and rights to gather is so critical for culture to um, to renew itself and continue. So. A big piece of this work will be translating our work for these western frameworks and these land owning agencies and other private landowners to ensure that the reciprocal restoration and healing that the Amamutsen tribal band is leading can continue and can actually be um you know resourced so to ensure that it continues uh perpetually and so You know, this might look like guiding management recommendations for parks agencies, you know, when to avoid and where to avoid things like using herbicide or suitable times of year to mow or burn if agencies are able to do that type of stewardship. Uh, it could also involve expanding gathering access. So if we're able to show that there are hotspots in places where so many cultural resources are present and would depend on continued reciprocal restoration with Amamutsen people, we can advocate for that access in this very you know, sort of comfortable Western framework way through maps. So we're hoping to, be, um, to do some of that translation work as well in order to, um, to really meet both the second and the third themes of the interviews um, the, from the people that we spoke with.
1: Thank you very much. Oh. Uh, I just wanna say thank you so much, for Alexi and Annie. Um, you're doing groundbreaking work, and I can see how this, your, your project will benefit all tribal communities in California, um, especially since uh, it, it bi- helping build relationships with state parks uh, for that harvesting and gathering for, for tribes. So thank you so much. Um, that uh, concludes our panels, um, and we'd like to open it up for s- um, some brief questions um, from the audience, if anyone has any questions. Um.
3: Yeah, so the question was, uh, for folks who are interested in this reciprocal re- restoration, uh, what would be a good way to take part? Uh, and you know, I also encourage you mm-hmm. to uh, talk with Chairman Lopez after this, but what I can say is that the Amamutsun Land Trust is doing a native plant propagation program up in Pescadero, where there is a volunteer program every Monday and Friday to help restore indigenous cultural landscapes at Kiroste Valley Cultural Preserve, and there should be more information on the website.
1: Each of our panelists shared uh, a a large amount of information, and there's just a lot of work happening, so I would like to applaud um, the UC's Critical Mission Studies Project uh, for funding all of this research, uh, and thank you so much.